Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Hemp Present. I'm Vivian McPeak. If you have feedback or would like to suggest a guest or topic for Hemp Present, email me at hemppresent at gmail.com. Regular listeners will know that 90% of the time, this show focuses on cannabis-specific topics and guests, cannabis legalization, medical cannabis, industrial hemp legalization efforts, lifestyle, etc. But I'm also dedicated to chronicling cannabis culture. And for the majority of my life, that has been fairly synonymous with the alternative culture. And I'm dedicating this first month of the year entirely to the counterculture, which brings me to my guest today. David Gans is an American musician, songwriter, and music journalist. He is a guitarist, singer, and is known for his incisive, literate songwriting. Gans has authored or co-authored several books, including Conversations with the Dead, The Grateful Dead Interview Book, and Playing in the Band, an oral and visual portrait of the Grateful Dead. And he is the host of the weekly syndicated radio show, the Grateful Dead Hour. Gans currently co-hosts a radio show with Gary Lambert on Sirius XM's The Grateful Dead channel called Tales from the Golden Road, a call-in show about The Grateful Dead, and I'm honored to have him in the virtual studio with me today. Welcome, David, to Cannabis Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I'm sort of a perfect guest for you because not only am I a big old deadhead, obviously, but I'm also a very, very strong advocate for uh, cannabis, I use it as a performance-enhancing drug, and I've always uh, uh, wanted to be part of the movement to get people to understand it better and uh, and use it. Well, excellent, excellent. Uh, that's that is definitely a perfect fit, man. Um, you know, you, David, you've had such an interesting career, and we can only scratch the surface in the time we have allowed. You started out as a musician in 1970, playing guitar and writing songs. You performed solo and also played in various bands in the San Francisco Bay Area, which yeah. for many deadhead types like myself, pretty much equates to hippie Mecca or Valhalla in the Golden Age. Um, how were you initially introduced to music? Was your family musical? Yeah, my family, my, my parents put a violin in my hands when I was about seven or eight years old, I guess, and they took it away from me a few days later uh, <laughs> and uh, replaced it with a clarinet, which I played all through grade school and through high school, actually. Um, I played in school orchestras, and I even did a summer in a marching band down in Southern California when I was a kid. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like I became a musician in 1969, when my brother took a couple of my little tortured teenage poems and turned them into songs and taught me the chords. I, so uh, I, from that moment on, all I've really wanted to do was play music, write songs and stuff. And I, I never even formed a plan to do it. I just fucking did it. And, and I've led this completely improvised life ever since i've been writing songs since that and that took place in the spring of 1969 so um i've been at this for more than 50 years and i have never made a plan in my life i've just been incredibly lucky <laughs> and uh, obviously i i must be good at these things that i do uh and i'll i'll take credit for you know 
delivering on whatever I promise, but basically I feel like I'm just a, a beneficiary of a ridiculous string of good breaks in life. My, my instrument was trumpet in school, so I relate. Um, <laughs> in your words, what was San Francisco like for a musician-songwriter in 1970? How would you characterize the basic vibe and scene? Was there, was there any sense at the time that you all were laying down musical history? <clears throat> Well, not, not what I was doing. I was just a kid trying to get into that world. You know, I, I was a little too young and, and uh, not properly situated to go to see bands at the Fillmore and stuff. The only time I went to the Fillmore uh, to hear music was in a group of teenagers from the Jewish Community Center, you know. And I mean, <laughs> I, I saw the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, The Ultimate Spinach and Charles Lloyd, but I was, you know, 13 years old and had no idea what I was seeing and hearing. So I, I was a little too young to really be part of that thing. Right. And as, in terms of the, you know, is history being made and stuff? I, I guess I don't really, I don't think of it that way because we've just, we've just been living it. And we, in, in this, in my little corner of the hippie culture, we all just kind of committed to this Grateful Dead thing and followed it and organized our lives around its teachings you know i became that the same kind of musician that the grateful dead taught me to be and found ways to thrive but i, I just had i, I don't I, we were just doing it as far as i can tell uh, i i i'm standing back and looking at it in terms of history and stuff is um somebody else's mission i guess <laughs> You started a successful writing career as a music writer for the free bi-weekly Bay Area music magazine, BAM, and you went on yeah. to write for publications, including Relics and Rolling Stone. You interviewed a smorgasbord of musical giants <laughs> of that time. How did you fall into that gig? How did you make that transition from singer-songwriter to music journalist? Well, I wanted to learn about music, and there were music magazines. I've just been reviewing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about to launch a Kickstarter to do a book of my photos of the Grateful Dead and stories that go with them. So I've been revisiting my entire archive and my journals and my songwriting documents and stuff. And I found a bunch of really, really interesting things. Um, I, in the beginning of 76, I wrote down in my journals that I wanted to, to you know, become a writer, to make a living as a writer. I, before that, I was doing hourly work, doing pay step for the local, for the Oakland YWCA and things like that, uh, and, and proofreading for a typesetter and things like that, and also selling pot, you know, to, to make, make a living. And playing music, again, that's all I really wanted to do in those days. But the idea, I wanted to become a writer and I thought that I could become a music journalist. I had reviewed some records for uh, uh, an underground paper in San Jose when I was at school down there. So I sort of had the idea that I could become a music journalist and learn and meet people and stuff. And that's what happened. I was, uh, what BAM started in uh, the spring of 1976, originally based in San Jose, and then they moved up to the East Bay to uh, Berkeley near where I live now. Uh, and an, another guy tried to start a similar magazine in San Jose around, you know, like right after BAM or something. And I, I that guy was uh, an old friend of mine invited me to contribute to that publication. So I started my writing career with a magazine that lasted about two issues. 
And when it folded, I took my unpublished material to BAM magazine in uh, up at their at their new offices in Albany, California, and joined their staff. They welcomed my work, and I became a regular contributor. And by the way, early in my career there, I met Blair Jackson, who was the editor of BAM at the time, and and therefore my you know the guy who gave me assignments at the magazine also a big big old deadhead and eventually we became collaborators during my time at bam uh blair invited me to join him for a big interview with jerry garcia which we did in the spring and summer of uh, 81 in two sessions and blair and i have been collaborating uh, on all this kind of stuff ever since how important do you think that experience and that access was in terms of priming you for the career you have today oh everything about it i mean i i was trying to augment my, um, I mean, I, my main interest was writing and playing music and I wanted to make a record and I, the usual stuff that an ambitious kid with no resources had going for him. Becoming a, a, a musician, I mean, becoming a writer gave me access to records, concert tickets, and eventually to meeting people. I mean, one of the first people I ever interviewed was Les Paul, uh, over at the old Waldorf in San Francisco. Um, and, and then I, I started, I, I, as my music journalism career grew, I wound up writing for a couple of national publications, including one called Record that was owned by Rolling Stone. And I got to do things like fly across the country to interview Joe Walsh in Michigan and um, Rod Stewart in Florida and Fleetwood Mac in LA and things. So I, I got to do about 10 years of music journalism during a time when it was still a, a lot of fun. And it got me into studios to talk to engineers and it got me to sit down with Don Was for a couple of long interviews and Lindsey Buckingham and Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir and Phil Lesh eventually. One of the big breakthroughs in my journalism career at BAM, I was sort of the resident Grateful Dead guy. They even had a column of Grateful Dead um uh uh you know events that it was called dead ahead there was enough going on in the grateful dead world that there was a regular feature about it which they put me in charge of and that put me in touch with eileen law who was the sort of deadhead liaison in the office and that led to my interviewing band members and that led to my socializing with band members and getting to be friends with them and i sort of for a while in the early 80s i was kind of the pet journalist in that scene I would hang out because Bobby was doing his solo stuff uh, with the Midnights and all. So it was useful to have a guy around that could get take a photo and get it published and and could write uh, favorable news stories about them and stuff. So it, it it everything that I was doing was totally fun and enriching on its own terms and fed into my principal path of making my own music. I was learning, I was making connections, I was acquiring equipment at a discount and things like that. Um, we have a little over a minute to the first break. I first became aware of you while listening to your longtime syndicated show, The Grateful Dead Hour. Um, you know, somehow you successfully transformed your fandom into a you know, seriously high profile gig while promoting a band that you loved um, see, kind of, see, see, refer to my earlier statement, series of incredible good breaks. Right. That's Very how that all came about, right? Well, again, I, I'll take credit for being smart enough to recognize when a door opened in front of me. 
But those doors, you know, some of them opened of their own accord. And I sort of, you know, a lot of it does seem like just happy coincidence and all. Anyway. Well, amazing. Amazing. Well, you know, what a what an impact that you've had. Uh, once again, I got about, we got about 45 uh, seconds, but but how did you manage to move into radio from you went from, you know, music to uh, journalism and then to radio? How did that I, I wrote a book in 1985, a book that I, I co-wrote with Peter Simon called uh, Playing in the Band, an Oral and Visual Portrait of the Grateful Dead. It was published in the spring of 85 and uh, in the fall of 84, K-Fog here in San Francisco had started a strip of specialty shows, including on Monday nights, the K-Fog Deadhead Hour. And they had one of their jocks was playing dead tapes. And I went on that show as a guest to promote my book and also to help this guy with he was a full time morning drive DJ with another specialty show of his own. So he was very happy to have a couple of deadheads myself and Dr. Richard Raphael and maybe a couple other guys giving him tapes for his show. And eventually when my book came out, the station management said, well, geez, we've got an actual expert on the topic here. Would you like to take responsibility for the show? And I was wow. having a huge good time doing it. I was cutting tape and, you know, editing interviews and stuff and really learning. And to have an excuse to have a justification for collecting all those tapes, <laughs> hell yes. And the music never stopped, as they say. I'm talking to David Gans. we take a quick break, come back with our second segment. Time to roll out for the people that let us have present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. And we're back with deadologist David Gans. <laughs> um David, very few music acts in history have attained the degree of adulation and fan worship as the Grateful Dead have. They're a, they're a phenomenon in and of their own and of all the great acts associated with the 60s San Francisco music scene. And there are many. To me, the Dead pretty much became the extemporary musical ambassadors for the 1960s counterculture. You know, you were along for some of that ride. You know, why do you think the Grateful Dead, how do you explain their meteoric rise? I hope I can keep track of the complex thought that I want to tell you right now, because a number of factors uh, are in play. One of them is that a lot of the other hippie institutions disappeared over time. They they ran, right. went out of business. They became culturally passe. They weren't able to sustain their creativity or whatever. So a lot of the hippie trappings fell on the Grateful Dead because their fan base so willingly adopted all that stuff and and made it even more florid than it had been before. So the, the Grateful Dead began uh, over time, or sort of became the avatars of 60s culture and, and the, the surviving um, practitioners of it despite the fact that they also became a band of just ridiculous musical depth. And my, yeah. I will always place the importance of the Grateful Dead and the fame and power of the Grateful Dead on the music first. Mm -hmm. The tie-dyes and shit, that all is an, uh, uh, Gingerbread. part of it. Yeah, But none of it would exist if the music weren't deep enough to attract the lifelong attention of people like me. I'm I'm not a stupid man. I'm not easily led. I fell into this music because it was deeply, deeply interesting, satisfying, and inspiring to me as a musician. What I learned from the Grateful Dead about how music is made, 
and not just i mean what the grateful dead brought together their collection of influences and made this what i characterize as uh improvisational folk rock uh literate improvisational folk rock and they they built on a lot of traditions and they brought a lot of music into their thing created an utterly unique language and proceeded to have this conversation in public for 30 years that we were witness to kind of a perfect uh, lyrical musical and cultural storm right yeah it worked for a lot of different people and here's another thing about it the grateful that evolved over time they kept themselves interested by keeping uh one another interested and by keeping us interested and uh bill graham i, I interviewed bill graham we we bonded over the grateful dead many times and bill talked about how a lot of rock fandom is is fairly temporary and ephemeral you know like people usually grow out of their heavy metal fandom and get into more sophisticated kinds of music Mm -hmm. This is obviously an oversimplification, but this is what Bill was saying from his vantage point as a concert promoter. He said, people don't outgrow the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead change and they get it. They grow up and they change and they go into their careers and stuff, but they still stay with the Grateful Dead and they'll still come and check in with the Grateful Dead. So the Dead evolved musically and became a different kind of band at several places in their history, which mm -hmm. brought new audiences in without discouraging the older audiences. Yeah, and I then, actually... Oh, I'm sorry, and, go ahead. and I also there were also multiple I know four generation families of deadheads. This is something that's passed along and that people brought their kids into and stuff. And I my contention is that it's entirely worthy of this depth of attention because of its complex and literate nature and and because it 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 represents a sort of evolution of music making. It's it's the um syntax of jazz uh with the vocabulary of folk music let's get back to your own music for a minute you have been doing a lot of experimenting with looping how did yeah. you discover looping and why are you attracted to it uh because i started touring as a solo artist because i couldn't afford to take a band on the road i started touring seriously in 1998 and I, I had my Martin guitar with me with a pickup in it and stuff. And I did everything that I could in that circumstance. But I wanted to expand my range of expressions. The first thing I bought was a, a, this thing called a Line 6. that had a very, very short looping feature in it. And that got me interested. It wasn't long enough to do a song in. But it was long enough to do a, a musical figure in that I could improvise around. And I, I quickly ran uh, into its ceiling and traded it for a, a proper looping device with more memory. And the reason it works for a musician like me is that you can record the rhythm part of, of uh, you know, like the verse of a song that you're singing. And then when, the, when you want to play a solo over it, you just play back the recording from the pedal and you play your solo over it. And that's the simplest uh, and most useful thing about being is, is as an accompaniment device. But once you have that amazingly powerful tool on the floor in front of you, you start thinking of other things you can do with it. And it became a compositional tool. If I, I be being an improvisational musician, it's hard to find ways to improvise with myself that aren't just a guy noodling on a guitar. So you bring in a device like this that allows you to record something and then play along with it. 
it opens up a whole world of possibilities. And I, I have done things where I, I, I have, I just start playing like random, a random like four bar figure or something, loop that, and then just start playing random uh, syncopations and stuff and answers to it and stuff along with it and build something and create new rhythms and stuff. And, and I, I've also developed um, compositions there are specific pieces of music that begin with one thing, but then have a sort of type case of uh, melodic gestures that I can bring into it in different combinations and different order so that I have a different performance of each uh, of a song every time I do it. These are ways to keep myself uh, interested and more interesting as a performer and ways to make improvisation possible in a solo setting. You touched on your Kickstarter that you're launching for a book of your Grateful Dead photos. Can you talk a little bit about that and how people can support that? Uh, I don't know how they can support it yet, but be on the lookout for it. I believe it's going to be on Kickstarter. Jay Blakesburg is producing the book for me. Uh, he's, the, he's an old friend and he's obviously the perfect guy to do it since he's done half a dozen books of his own photos. I was always a photographer when I was a kid. I I, I had a toy camera, or a, you know, my my dad's camera, whatever, and I got my own proper Nikon on my 21st birthday, and I would do my own dark work, room work and stuff. When I was started being a music journalist, I would bring my camera along too because I'm freelancing and I could sell photos nice. along with my articles. So for, you know eight ten years there i was taking photos of the artists that i was uh, documenting and i was hanging out with the grateful dead and taking photos and i got into some really interesting situations that nobody else did i don't have as much concert photography as everybody else does but i have these other things backstage photos and photos in the studio and even photos taken at, at band members houses and stuff and i've wanted to collect them into a book and when i proposed uh asked jay to help me you know work up a budget for it and all he suggested that i uh, tell some stories to go with it too that i i talk about my unique path into that world and the unique path that i followed in that world and and where i stand in it now so the book is basically a collection of my Grateful Dead photos from 1972 to 1974 with some blather in there about why this music is important to me and little bits of history. And and also, I think it, we haven't actually sat down and, and organized this yet, but Jay asked me to collect bits of ephemera, you know, uh, copies of the columns that were published in BAM and things like that. So there will be a sort of a bits of uh, scrapbook type stuff along with my story about it. So it's going to be uh, a, a bunch of un a unique collection of photos of the Grateful Dead and my uh, story and um, maybe some discussion of why the music should matter to anybody i look forward to that because you know the concert photos are boring man the interesting photos are the, the behind the scenes ones i think um this is the book for you then nice nice i'm talking to david gans we're gonna take another break and come back with our final question so don't go anywhere time to roll out for the people that let us have present hang loose we're coming right back we're back with david gans 
David, can you talk about your daily live streams and, and any other uh, projects that you have going down the road or anything else you want to add? Yeah, thank you. I, I have not played a gig. I've played maybe seven or eight outdoor gigs since the pandemic started uh and only one of them with uh with a band uh, but i have i in, in april of 2020 i started thinking about what i was going to do with myself during the shutdown and i looked for spots in the calendar where nobody else had announced a gig and i and i came to the conclusion that if i waited till there was an empty spot i would never play so I decided to start playing every day and I sort of worked. I, 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 it started basically on April 4th. I have played almost every day. I missed a few days. My wife and I went, uh, went camping uh, in the September of 2020 for a few days. And I missed a day that, for my colonoscopy one day. And I've <laughs> missed a handful of days for, for other reasons here and there, but I've played almost every day since April 4th of 2020. And I plan to continue doing this every day for the foreseeable. I, my trip to Mexico was canceled because of COVID fear and I'm gonna stay home and I'm just gonna keep doing this. I, I have, um, uh, this pandemic forced me to get off my ass and open an online store finally. So you can order signed books from me as well. I have two books in that. Uh, in that store, uh, we mentioned earlier, this is all a dream we dreamed, an oral history of the Grateful Dead. That's the one I co-wrote with Blair Jackson. And uh, I also have Conversations with the Dead, the revised edition, which has the uh, an extra piece in it, uh, an interview with Ned Lagin, but unfortunately does not have the Rick Griffin cover on it. But these two books are available uh, and signed by the author since Blair Jackson lives a few doors away from me. He'll come over and sign books. And so if you want a copy of This Is All a Dream We Dream, it'll be signed by both of us. And the place to get that is perfectible.net, P-E-R-F-E-C-T-I-B-L-E dot net. And uh, I also have music in there for, for sale as well. I've made a lot of records of Grateful Dead music and of my own music over the years. So please come and have a look. Very good. Um, you know, you have given so much. Uh, you know, I've, I've listened to your show so many times, been a fan of your music. It's just thrilling to have you on the show. Um, listeners, you can check out David's music on his website, dgans.com, G-G-A-N-S.com. Follow the Grateful Dead Hour at gdhour.com. David Gans, thank you for the great programming and contributions you've made and for being on Hemp Present. Best of luck with all your endeavors. Uh, and best of luck with yours, too. As I said, I'm a huge advocate of uh, hemp as a uh, creative tool, and so I support what you're doing, and I'm proud to be part of your offering. Thank you. Excellent. That concludes this installment of Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio. When it comes to prohibition, you've got the right not to remain silent. <laughs> Activism requires a voice, so find your voice and speak up for justice because resistance is fertile. Until then, my friends, see you next week. Stay strong. Marijuana!
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is pro. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off. My rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Inhibited. 